Hello and welcome to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by a man who I once shared a football pitch with. It's Chris Somersell. Chris, hello. Hi, John. So glad to be on here. Uh, unfortunately, when I shared that pitch with you, I was beset by injury, so I wasn't able to show my full repertoire of talents. I think I outshone Thiago on the day, so uh, that's that's the main thing really, isn't it? That is the most important thing, yes, and I'm sure he'll love to hear that. Chris is a coach, a recruitment and opposition analyst working with Market Insights. He's occasionally a football writer, and most importantly, he is someone who is perennially disappointed by Spurs. I'm excited about this episode because it's the first episode on this podcast where we're really getting into the practical aspects of tactics. Chris has been a coach for around a decade now and is just about to start working with a women's team in Scotland. And fortunately for us, he's good enough to talk us through that process. So the process through which he's going to instill a quote-unquote tactical identity into his new team. Uh, but before we begin that, Chris, let's just begin with a little bit of background on your coaching career. So how did you end up getting into coaching? So yeah, it was about a decade ago now. And I guess growing up playing football, never thought I'd go into coaching was, I guess, completely tactically vacant. But had, I guess a, like a philosophy of how I thought the game should be played which kind of jarred with this sort of how, how football was, was played um, in the UK. And I guess the first team that I saw, which which really sort of got me thinking about coaching, didn't actually get me coaching, but thinking about it was, you know, it's the cliche, was Guardiola's Barcelona because they look so different. And I just thought, that looks great. I want to understand that more. I want to understand how, you know, how such a different style of play could have been created and that got me reading Inverting the Pyramid by Jonathan Wilson and the zonal marking websites which were like huge back in them days when there wasn't the volume of tactical writing, there wasn't like football Twitter back then. Those were what sort of got me thinking about tactics and then I guess if it was now I would think I'm just going to go tactical writing on, online and that's it but back then it was like the obvious thing was to go coaching Turned up my local club and got coaching youth football. And ended up you know, working with, I guess, the younger age groups where, where that sort of tactical knowledge was less important. So uh, that's what I got into it. But yeah, it was it was Guardiola's Barcelona. It, yeah, it's the cliched answer. But and then reading those really influential books and that website, which really got me thinking and opened a world that back then just it wasn't talked about. It was it was completely new. Obviously, a lot of people who want to go into coaching will start from that sort of high culture location of Guardiola's Barcelona. And and obviously, then within a very short amount of time, you're working in youth football. And it's a, a far cry from, obviously, what's going on at the new camp. So do you have any sort of rough thoughts on, on that process of moving from this sort of ideal account of how football should be played into the sort of grassroots of, of English football at the time? Presumably that was a bit of a jarring experience, right? Oh yeah, of course. You're going from yeah watching Barcelona take apart Real Madrid, Man United, the Champions League final, and then on a Sunday morning after you're, you're on a stepladder putting a net up with sock tape and you're, you're clearing up dog mess off the, off the pitch before you're playing on it and you're in a, like a wet, windy recreation ground in northwest London with, you know, kids, some kids who don't even want to be there and you're like, this is a lot different, you know, to how I expected and this, this grand idea, this grand, you know, of how you want to play and then you have one hour training a week and, and a game played on massive pitches with young players, you know, and it ends up them booting back and forth and yeah, it's, it's true. It's a jarring experience, but it's where you grow as a coach. It's where you, you learn to develop how you, you know, your coaching style, how you deal with people, deal with players, and hopefully implement some ideas based on your preferences and how you see the game should be played. I suppose this brings me on to a sort of key fundamental theoretical point, which is I've written down on the running order tactics as theory versus tactics as practice. I suppose, again, the Claims that are always going to be made, I think, about tactics nerds, to use that perhaps unfair naming, is that they're, you know, a lot of what they're doing is sort of completely divorced from reality. They're sitting there, they're trying to do post hoc analysis on something that's happened and trying to guess what the manager's trying to get the, the players to do. And then obviously then you have this idea of uh, tactics as practice, which is tactics form a very, very different point of contact I think when you're working in in the coaching sphere so yeah interested in your thoughts on on that aspect in that you went in with this sort of high 
ideal theoretical notions of, of Guardiola uh, and tactics. But how quickly did you come to realise that, you know, tactics aren't just something that you can talk about as a coach and just sort of say, this is the way that we, we play. These are the ideas that I want. It's actually much more about instilling ideas within a player's, like not only within their minds, but within their bodies in a more sort of fundamental sense, right? I've never really been that kind of person to say, oh yeah, it's great written down on paper, but on the pitch it's useless and often it's often it's just the language that's used you'll have this exactly the same concept or idea but someone will use one t- bit of terminology and sometimes it sounds a bit more avant-garde than when it's on a on Spielverlager and some of that which like, by the way when that came out I was consuming everything of that but it was me taking little pieces of information from that and then building I can use that and then Yes, some of it is like, right, that's not going to land well with a group of under-13s. But actually, if I take that little aspect and create this little practice, I can get something out of it. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess that sort of, uh, oh, it's just theory, it doesn't work, you're just a tactical nerd. That's often a response to people I don't think of that curious. And often, like, let's say, for example, I might use a term now called unbalancing, and that's about how we unbalance the opposition on the last line of defence. And you might say that and someone says, what are you talking about? What, what, what nerd term is unbalancing? And then they'll deliver a practice and they'll say, oh, there's one striker comes short, the other goes long. Uh, and, I, and I'll say, oh, that's what I was saying. And they say, well, yeah, you use this term unbalancing. And, and I'll also say, well, I use, <laughs> I've used far less syllables in mine than you have, so who's the nerd really? But, you know, it's just often it's that language and coaching is prioritization as well. There's so much knowledge out there. You can read a 10,000 word article on spiritual library with so much information and you might never be able to get all that information into your players, particularly if you're working part-time, two sessions a week, three sessions a week. This is prioritizing what you're giving them. And yes, you might not give it in exactly the same terminology that you've read about it. And personally, I don't mind that. Maybe a long-winded use of terminology and phrasing, but for me, it's like, how do I translate that into maybe more coachable words? But no, I've never really bought into that. And, you know, I think around about that time when I was getting started in coaching and you were starting to get the, the tactics writing starters crop up, already, already mentioned Spiel room, but the whole football Twitter sphere, you only had to look at all these coaches who've gone into want to work at higher levels. Rene Maric is probably the obvious example. He was like derided at first by a lot of people. And Rene is now working as an assistant manager in the Champions League. So he's sort of won that debate really. But there's not really something I subscribe to, but understand there has to be sort of a translation process dependent on, on age, on stage and level of ability. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that translation process because you've worked at loads of different levels. You've mentioned that you started out working in youth football. You've also coached under 20 teams as well. And then you are moving into the women's game now. So I guess the thing that I'm hearing from you is that it's about being able to take ideas and implement them and translate them to those teams at the level that they're at, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I I started off, my my first team I coached was under 14 team and it was terrible. It was, you know, I almost quit over that first season. I thought, this is impossible. How do I coach this group of players, uh, it's it's not going well, but it was a real learning process. I then actually moved into an under seven team, and I t- this is grassroots level back in England. Under sevens to under elevens, I took this team, where I really like sort of started understanding coaching. And whilst it's not, it, this goes back to terminology. I think we're going to talk quite a lot about how we term things because people say, "Oh, you can't give tactics to an under seven or eight player," but then I say, "What does tactics mean?" Yes, I'm not going to teach an under-7s team to run a high line or to create this pressing drop here, but coaching them how to maybe dominate a 2v1 situation, that's tactics, right? That is a tactical ploy, and they can understand that. So it's just, I guess, uh, scaling that up as you go. See, I worked with those really young players, a foundation phase, if we call it, then moved into uh, still in the, in the same you know, foundation phase with Brighton Hove Albion Development Centres, which was obviously really cool. Then became like a coach educator, which is a good way to educate yourself as a coach. So I, I taught the level one course, English FA level one. And then I moved up to Scotland where I got involved with the higher age group. So yes, I'd worked in under twenties football. So that is, you know, that was working in a performance level. Unfortunately, that's when COVID hit. So that team, we didn't really play many games. It was just a lot of, sort of preparation, uh, a whole pre-season, which went really well. And then the season was canned and then moved into the women's game again with the older age groups that was under 19s at Hearts, who I've recently left. 
So yeah, it's been quite a big experience, but it's been good because I've sort of joined up the pathway in my head and understand different ages, different abilities and understanding that pathway and how players develop and how you can scale up that information the higher you go up. Something that you've, when we mentioned in the intro, I guess, was that you are working for Market Insights and you're using data quite a bit. And you've been someone, I think, who's used data a lot even before you joined Market Insights. But could you just talk to us quickly about how you use data in coaching? I mean, obviously, certain levels that you've been working at, that data provision just hasn't been there. But as you've moved up the pyramid, presumably, there's been more and more availability for you to to implement dating in your coaching. To be honest, not really in terms of what the players are doing themselves in games and training. I've never had any sort of data collections other than maybe me as a coach that I'm assigned I'm doing shot maps in my notepad. But I've always had an interest in data and football and I guess I'd call it data-informed coaching. How does the advances in the game that we understand through the use of data inform how I coach? And I guess the obvious one is, is expected goals. So how do we create better quality chances for our players? to score but there's other things as well I mean I've recently wrote about how Liverpool block shots which came as a bit of a revelation to me when I sort of dug into it and that's got me thinking how do I coach players in that aspect of the game so I call it data informed coaching but again I think there's not many coaches who are how to say data literate or just don't understand the role it plays in the game there's absolutely no real talk about data in coaching courses and I still think that's a massive gap between the data side and the coaching side that there's you know, there's not a great understanding between the two. At the level I work at, I guess the higher you get, which I'm not at yet, there is a better sort of uh, filtering of information through to, to coaching staff. But yes, uh, I use it to inform how I coach from what I learned, that I've learned through the vast advances we made through data analytics in the last few years. Before we jump into talking about your new job and then and sort of talking about the concepts of instilling a, a tactical identity into a side, just a quick Patreon question actually from a good friend of both of ours, actually Nathan Clark of the Extra Inch podcast, which is a podcast that you're frequently on, at least in, on the Patreon side of things. Nathan asks, do you ever feel or have you ever felt insecure about your own technical ability or fitness when coaching others who are superior in those areas? I wondered who this question was from at the extra inch because you, you did put it was Nathan. So Nathan's throwing shade on my technical ability and my fitness. <laughs> Can't believe it. Not really, no. I mean, I'm technically capable as a footballer. I can play. I played at a relatively good level. And I guess that's it's seen as quite an important thing to demonstrate in training. I disagree that it's actually as important as people make out because that sort of precludes people who are brilliant coaching minds who just can't play. So it's not something I feel insecure about. I just use it sometimes to my advantage that I can play a little bit. Although it sometimes goes wrong. Like someone who will definitely be listening to this podcast, Luke Griffin, he, uh, he came to watch a session recently and I was trying to demonstrate like a humble over the top for a deep runner and I had a line of mannequins um, to create a bit of like chaos for the players and of course I've you know wedged the ball and it's hit the head of the mannequin knocked it over everyone's <laughs> laughing and uh, and you've lost your you've lost your thread as a coach at that point so you know sometimes uh, I felt a little bit insecure at that point but not generally fitness wise I mean I don't I don't have to do the running you know so uh, it's it's not something I um I feel that bad about and. There are obviously lots of coaches who are ex-pros who are good players. Someone like Zidane at Real Madrid obviously can. (laughs) I'm sure he was doing things even the players he was coaching couldn't do. So, yeah, I don't think it's that important. If you can't demonstrate, get a player to demonstrate, use video, there's plenty of ways you can do that. So I don't feel particularly insecure about that myself. Right, let's move on then to talk about the new job that you've you've taken up, just to give us a sort of context that we need to then talk about how we might adopt some kind of game model and work that through in the coaching side of things. So yeah, tell us about the new job. I said, I recently left Hearts under-19s girls and have made the short move across the city to Hibernian in the same under-19s girls. And they play in these what's called National Performance League. And it is the last level before first team football. So Hibs Hearts, they, the first teams both compete in the SWPL1. So I'm sort of shadowing the coach. I wouldn't call myself the assistant at the moment because I'm very much on a, a short term, just going in to support a little bit what the coach is doing. And at the end of the season, because a lot of those goals are too old for basically a new format and they're changing it to under 18s, they're too old for that next year. But Hibs want to keep them in the system. So they partnered with a local club. 
which is, a, I guess, a de facto feeder club, B team, whatever you want to call it. So I'll be taking them into women's first team football. Not sure of the level quite yet. Hopefully as, as high as possible, where the aim is obviously to build this team. I'll be able to recruit from elsewhere. But the main idea behind the team is that we are trying to develop some of those girls back into into a green shirt with, with the Hibs first team. But I will have control of this team to build like not just the team, but the, the goal section of this club and to hopefully move them on. And as we're going to talk about, create like a, a real tactical identity on the pitch, a game model, whatever you want to call it. And we'll get onto that in a minute. It's exciting. I, you know, I've got a bit of experience working in the women's girls game now. And it's my first experience of, of first team football. And whilst there's still a big development aspect to it, there is obviously a, a requirement to be competitive and, and win games of football, which is something I'm maybe not as used to. So looking forward to it. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. You've mentioned already there a couple of phrases. We, we talked about instilling a tactical identity, but you use the phrase game model, which is obviously a popular turn of phrase at the moment. You happy with talking about game models? Do you think it's, it's too formal? Do you, do you think it's something that you have to formalise as a coach going into a job like that? Well, it's interesting because I think I use that phrase tactical identity without really thinking and game model without really thinking. And it goes down to there's so much subjectivity in football. I was listening to Emma Hayes recently on a podcast, who's brilliant, by the way. And she was saying that how there's so much in football coaching is rooted in subjectivity. There's no real objective framework like most professions I think she uses the example like a, a brain surgeon in Brazil would do exactly the same procedure as a brain surgeon in England would do. They might sew the body up afterwards a bit differently, but these professions like law, medical, they're all underpinned by something. And FIFA, I guess is our global governing body, don't have that. So, you know, so coaches are left with this their own subjective interpretation and terminology to use. So I mean, I try to deter, like, determine the difference between style of play and game model. Like, I think style of play is more global. So we might say, oh, this team is a counter-attacking team and they defend deep. That is sort of their style of play. And then the model or your identity, I guess. I guess identity is a bit closer to style of play, but a game model is more the specifics of how you're going to do it. So there are different ways you can play a positional or possession game of football or counter-attacking football or counter-pressing football. Because like a Guardiola team can look very different from a Ten Hag team or a Pochettino team, but you'd still probably characterise them as their style of plays being similar, but their game models are different. And that can be based on the individual coach's perspective or the players they've got, or a bit of both. So yeah, it's, it's difficult for me to talk about this in terms of definites because there is no objective framework to work from and this goes for like national associations in terms of like what are the principles of play the principles of play should be something that is pretty concrete but the English FA will have a different one from the Scottish FA from the Spanish FA from wherever and then you get into what is a principle and end up tying yourself in knots because there's no objectivity there so yeah I might use those terms sort of interchangeably but yeah you have a session coming up you can't really worry about that too much you have to looking at this is what I want this is how I want to play. Uh, how am I going to put that on the pitch on, on Saturday or Sunday via this training session? Yeah, I find the idea of, of a game model really interesting. And if you'll permit me my own analogy, it won't be as good as Emma Hayes's, I'm sure. But the analogy I'm going to use is when you go to school, often we're taught models of how things work, right? So you'll be taught a model of, of how an atom functions. And when we first turn up at school, when you're doing your GCSEs, they teach you this sort of, I think it's called the plum pudding model of the atom, where it's, you know, you have this bit in the middle and then all these other bits flying around the outside. And then if you carry on through higher education, learning physics or chemistry, I guess it would come under both, then they say, well, actually, this model was useful for what we were teaching you, but it's not exactly like that. So we're going to tell you a little bit more and we'll, we'll maybe extend the model, we'll change the model and we'll give you a different model entirely to, to operate with. And so that suggests that the way that models are used is sort of as a, as a heuristic, which is sort of out there, and it sort of informs the way that things are working in the real world. But there's, there is a bit of slippage between them. There's the ability for you to say, well, this is, this is my model, this is the reality, and we want there to be that connection. But there is that sort of slippage between the two of them. And I suppose this, 
question that I'm interested in is, is that how a game model functions for you? Is it something that you don't necessarily feel beholden to that you can say to your, well, I guess if you, you probably won't even be talking to your players necessarily about the game model, but when you're structuring the way that your team is playing, you'll, you'll say, well, actually, this model isn't really functional now. We, we need to tweak it here and need to tweak it there. How much sort of flexibility is built into that idea of a game model for you? That's a really good metaphor. I like it. And I mean, most coaches in your metaphor only really get to that first stage because the lifespan of a coach is, is minimal. In terms of the, putting your model onto a group of players and your group of players, again, will also change. So you have like, different players at different stages, different parts of the learning process. But I guess is layering on the information. So at the moment, I'm creating like a document for myself because I realized that all my sort of information that has gone in and out of my head over the last 10 years is written down on pieces of paper that have been lost in house moves and whatever. But I'm actually going to create a document online, which I'm just going to put everything I think I know from principles to patterns, to set pieces, everything and anything that I think is valuable to my coaching. Now, this could be a massive, massive document. Now, I cannot simply put that all into every single player, his player's head over the course of one season, probably not over the course of 10 seasons. So you have to like layer it. So what's really important, it's chunking, it's putting bits and fun bits over bits. And yes, there is flexibility in it because I might learn something new and think, oh, this is interesting, but it goes a little bit against what we've done before. So there is an element of flexibility in it. I've read the Pep Guardiola book, Pep Confidential, and he talks about teaching new language to players. And you have to be comfortable, I think, of putting your players onto the pitch with at least a framework. And then it's just layering on the information, layering on the new connections and and, and yeah, you know, you might change aspects of the model because like, you might have a chosen system of play where, you know, where your players are loosely positioned and then you might, you might get new players in who, so you, you might have wingers who can play wide, then you lose them and then you get lots of central midfielders. So you have to change aspects of the models. The style of play might remain similar in terms of, like for me, like possession, positional ideas, pressing, counter-pressing, but you might change how that is interpreted on the pitch. So yeah, I think it's a layering process, but I think maybe where, I'm just going back to that theory on in paper and, and theory in practice, is being comfortable with putting the players on the pitch and knowing that they don't know anywhere near as much as you'd like them to know. And there's no shortcuts. You have to give them bit by bit by bit. So when I take this new team over it, and by the way, they have played a very different style up until now. So it's going to be a real big learning process for them to suddenly start playing a different way and it might have to be getting really back to basics and it might take a while for it to, to work. And it might be that because they've not played in this style before, it's going to take me a little longer to just introduce even what I consider like quite basic elements to the team. So yeah, I think it's a layering process and it's prioritizing what you can work on because I mean I, I've gone from at heart to working three nights a week but next year it's part-time it's two nights a week so that's not much time to work with players so it's going to take time and most coaches tend to move on before they've even got to the next stage of implementing what they're doing but I'd hope to think after a while you'll be able to see this is a Chris Somersault team this is what he's been chatting about on podcasts forever and, uh, and and writing stuff for various websites. So, um, yeah, well, let's see how it goes, I guess. Will you talk to your players using the phrase game model and tactical identity? Is that something that you think they need to know? Or is it something that actually if you were to come to them, like you say, at the end of the season and say, right, this is my game model. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I recognize that. I recognize that. I recognize that. But you never mentioned game model. Like, How important is it for them to know the game model in that sense? I think so. I think I'll talk to them about that. I mean, I, I think sometimes people what's the word, almost patronise players about how much they can know or learn. It's not that I expect them to be going off and reading, you know, long reads on Spielbergering or whatever. But I'll, I'll talk about it when we get them in in pre-season. It will be they'll probably get like the PowerPoint treatment. This is this is what I'm looking to instill. First of all, from a style of play perspective, this is going to be different for you. This is how we're going to look to play. And then some examples of maybe best practice examples. This is like the sort of the idea, like the model. But you have to say to them, but this might change. We're still going to try to play like this, but in terms of depending on the players we have or lose, we might have to make tweaks. But at the moment, 
yeah, this is what we're looking to play like. So I'm quite comfortable in using that terminology of players. And in my experience, players, young players, they're absolutely fine with that. And you could probably use terminology that the people would might, might maybe like of more like let's say the proper football man persuasion might balk at and young players don't have those sort of priors they just go oh, right, that's cool that's that's what co- the coach is saying so yeah I'm quite comfortable using that terminology with them so the big question is what does your game model look like let's go for style of play first I think I mentioned it just before but I think every coach says this now but you know I, I like a possession dominant style of play I will say positional ideas I won't say fully positional play because there might be elements which isn't considered true positional play and I guess that is the theory element and when we lose the ball rapid counter press I think that's something I'm really really strong on that counter press after losing the ball and yet organised defence will be pressing as high as possible to win the ball back so that's quite simple stuff Right. Just to mention the counter attack, because that's often gets sort of pushed to the side, and I'm quite fluid on that. And that will, I think, be dependent on the players we we have, whether we have more of a we win the ball, let's just maintain possession, keep the ball, get our attack and organisation, or whether it will be. And I can see it going this way, where it will be. We have to make use of counter attacks because this team has played a counter attacking style, and there's quite a lot of pace in it in these players. So I think that might be something that we look to introduce so like those counter-attacking ideas as well in terms of the model obviously I know the players because I've been working with them for a short time at Hibs I haven't come to any firm conclusions yet on that but I know that we have quite a few wide players so I suspect it will be something maybe where we're using wingers who play high and wide on the field like you know two touchline hugging wingers and possibly in a in a 4-3-3 system that's all I can really say for now because they'll be doing some recruiting as well we're probably going to need some more central forward options as well so I can't really say exactly what the specifics of the model will look like but I'm pretty sure I'll be using two wide wingers which is something I aesthetically like and I think it actually works well in Scotland as well the two wide wingers because most teams bring their wingers inside the pitch so I think it provides a different aspect and most teams are not used to seeing it and I've actually seen that work with another coach I worked with briefly over here who used wide wingers so something aesthetically like but also think in terms of the players I have so it's a practical it's a pragmatic decision but it's also an aesthetic one because I as I like that I like that look so that's all I can really say in terms of the specifics the model so far so that might change next week but I think I think those the wide winger model will be uh, something I'm looking to introduce yeah it's funny you should mention aesthetic sensibilities there because I've got a question here just saying how much of your game model just does come down to your own aesthetic sensibility Oh, massively. I think a lot of coaches shy away from that because it seems like, no, no, it's all pragmatic. It's all about how do I win games? Going back to the early years when I was playing football, in, you know, I, I, as you know, I'm a Spurs fan and Spurs have that thing, the Spurs way, which gets laughed at a little bit. But I guess I really bought into that particularly uh, as, a, as a child and how I played the game. And my dad and my granddad I used to go to Tottenham with, they would always talk about the Tottenham way flair players attacking players so I've always had that in me and that's well before like I watched Guardiola it wasn't like oh I've seen Guardiola once everyone needs to split the centre backs and play out from the back and play that way it's always been in me and and I I think it would be silly of me not to sort of heed that I have to play something that's convincing to me and something that I've grown up with and it, this comes from someone who played in playing football in like the 90s and the early noughties in like a 4-4-2 system and having the ball sail over my head for the entire game and I was someone who wanted the ball on the floor and I'd get subbed off if I dribbled past the player because that was not right I had to launch it into the channels that was what was seen as, as the only way to play so it's very much sort of deep in me and I guess I, I can't sort of lie about that there's a very aesthetic element to it but it's also like taking what do I like and then how do I make this into a, a, a winning successful formula on the pitch and yeah so it, I, I can't get away from the fact that aesthetics play a massive part in in how I want to play football yeah and there's the famous Bielsa quote obviously about there being no point in trying to instill a tactical identity into a team if you don't believe it yourself which I think probably comes into that as well to a certain extent well absolutely I mean working in a like a, a bit of academy football like at Hearts for example where you're in part of a system and as much as you bring certain ideas of how you want to play, there's always a little bit of a trade-off. And sometimes you're delivering things in terms of maybe even like how they want 
session structured and the team structured. So I played the wide wingers for a little bit at Hearts and I guess the higher ups didn't particularly see the same uh, side of the coin as me. So I'm actually really looking forward to being, again, the ego of a coach <laughs> is coming to the foyer completely in control of, of what I'm doing as a coach. And yes, I will, I will bring in some support staff, like, you know, assistant coach, maybe some S&C as well, because that's an area I'm not good in, but I can, I set exactly what I want to do. And yeah, that is the ego of the coach coming to the fore. But compromising, it's sort of something I've been doing for a, a bit too long. And, you know, and now it's about, right, this is what I want. If it fails, then I'm failing on my own terms. And, and that's, again, a very Bielsa thing. And obviously, I adore Marcelo Bielsa, and he was a, a key <laughs> reference point. I didn't mention him at the start, actually. And I, let's go back to that, because that was that Guardiola team, and then it was his Athletic Bilbao team, who are just unbelievable. And I still go back and watch that that game where they beat Manchester United at Old Trafford, because it is one of the greatest performances I think I've ever seen. So, um, yeah, he, he's a key reference point to that. And I'm glad you brought him up, because... Um, I think him talking about coaching in a convincing manner to you is, is, is really something I, I sort of believe in myself. And I think going to Leeds again, I think that's what Jesse Marsh said a little bit about his time at RB Leipzig before going to Leeds. He said, I was making too many compromises on my style of play in order to fit in a little bit. And that sort of resonated with me as well. So yeah, it's living and dying by your own ideals, I guess. And that's something I'll, I'll be doing next season. Another thing that's been interesting to hear you talk about is being able to assess the players that you're working with before you get to coach them. So we had a question from Martin Grossman who said, new team, new coach, how do you go about assessing the quality of the puzzle pieces you have to work with in week one? Obviously, you're getting to see them a little bit earlier than that, but any go-to methods to help you evaluate what the group has to offer? Anything you're looking to see in particular? And by extension, what do you focus on on constructing first in that initial period of trainings before your opening match? It's a great question, and and yes, I've I've got the privilege at the moment of seeing the players play. Not only in training in matches where I'm I'm doing a little bit of coaching, but this is very much like a learning exercise to me. What can the players do individually, and and it takes a bit of time. You know, the first session, the coach came up to me and said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Yeah, it's fine. I, I don't really know anything about the players yet." Because it's just the ball zipping around. Think, oh, yeah, she's she's relatively good at this. But you've got a whole bunch of players in front of you. So it takes a bit of time. And eventually it's just scaffolding it on, the information. Oh, I think this player could maybe play in a different area of the pitch. Maybe the coach at the moment, maybe he's not seeing what I'm seeing there. But, you know, this player can only play in this area. So it's just scaffolding that on. I guess in a more a usual situation, so when it came to joining Hearts, so I joined just before pre-season last season, you have to get up to speed really quickly and it takes a while. So we had a few weeks of training and it was fairly, I'd say, generic practice, which I'm not really a fan of. I like really specific practice. So we can, every session, every practice is building in what you want, the identity. But I guess there's a few weeks of more generic practice and then you're thinking, right, okay, I've got an idea now. And, you know, I was, I was working with another coach at Hearts. It wasn't, it certainly wasn't just me. So I got an idea of what the players were capable of and then we constructed, like myself and the other coach, a like our model of what we were looking for based upon the players we had, which took a little while. So in terms of the next part of that question about how do you then go into training that, once you've got that information, which you know takes a little while to get, I guess next season I have the advantage that I know about the goals already. So I go away thinking, right, I've got information now. I know the way they play at the moment. I've watched them play. I said they play a different, compete different style at the moment. So how do I create training sessions to sort of like uh, interrupt that process of what they're used to? And I think the key thing is upon losing the ball, they're used to all running backwards. Now it's about well running forward and trying to counter press quickly. And it could look quite messy at first. It could it could take a while. So I think that's going to be a really interesting thing. But yeah, the straightaway preseason is is you know getting in getting those real basics right. So yeah, it's not just going to be about on the ball. But yeah, we will look at like how we're going to play out from the back, how we like rotate the midfield, how we work on the last line to to create free players or to create players in behind and stretch the pitch. But yeah, there's that that counter press as well, which I think is going to be really key. It's going to be, as I spoke before, about layering that information on. It could be quite quite slow. I do not expect it to be a quick process. And it's also quite dependent on the players we recruit in from elsewhere, hopefully, which will, will sort of fit, plug any technical and tactical gaps we have within the squad. 
be yeah, straight away. Preseason has to be straight into it. There's no messing around uh, with that because it's going to be quite a job, I think. And uh, I'm, I'm interested, slightly terrified of how it's going to go. Another thing that you talked about earlier, actually, was how there is a sort of symbiosis between the model and the players that you have to work with. You said that you have wingers wide players available to you so that will factor into the way that you're going to construct your identity and your game model as well so could you talk to us a little bit about that symbiosis between realizing that you will have players who will be better suited for certain things than others and that factoring in the way that you're going to structure the team tactically well i think the whole thing about you know, oh do you create your your model based on the players you have or do you have your model and the players have to fit in but i think that's always sort of framed around the debate of you're trying to play this expansive style of football with a group of players who can't do that. And it's always framed like that. So essentially, you should stop trying to play out from the back. You just get your lines up, smash it long and win seconds. I think that's generally how it's framed, not always. So I have my style of play, how I would like to play it. And yes, I will fit the pieces around it. So listen, if I have loads of number 10s, I'm not going to put them on the touchline where they're going to be ineffective. So if I talk about the heart situation, what we had was... We had some really good 1v1 wide players, bit of pace, could go on the inside and the outside. We didn't have athletic fullbacks or wingbacks who could get up, overlap, and be the width and the depth in the team themselves. So it was it was a pragmatic decision based on that. So I guess the closest team that maybe is uh, is relevant at the moment, maybe like Celtic. With Postacoglia, his, his fullbacks coming inside, and then the wide players on the wings trying to get them one v one, and and yes, you know, with the fullbacks inside, you're dominating the centre of the pitch. You can control transitions better. So that's what we did at Hearts. Now, I thought that was completely based upon the players we had. It did sort of play into my aesthetic sensibilities, but it was also a pragmatic decision as well. And I guess there was a bit of pushback from certain people within the club. It's like, why are you doing this? It looks completely different. Why is that winger not coming inside and the fullback getting on the outside? So, well, because this is, I'm building the model based upon the players I have. So, yeah, I, I think that might have answered the question. I think I might have gone off on a tangent there, but I hope I've just given you something. And I guess the question we need to sort of touch on now is moving from that theoretical level to the practical level. So how do you get those ideas from your your game model, your tactical identity, your play style? How do you then instill them as as sort of practical realities in the players themselves? Well, I mean, I spoke a little bit earlier about specific training and it's something I think is still so I'm working on and that's something I still find issues with with other coaches' sessions I watch. And that's not me criticising them. I think it's... You don't have that much time. Even if you're working a full-time week, you still don't have that much time with players. You might have two games a week, etc. So every session should be, in my opinion, as closely linked to the game as possible. And I think there's quite a lot of sort of in-specific, generic sessions put on that look great, but don't actually add up, don't actually implement something that you're working on. It might actually do the opposite. And for me, everything, even if you're doing high-intensity S and C work almost, where you're you know you're looking for physical returns. So maybe you're doing like a one v one practice. Can we put players in areas of the pitch in these one v one practices and in receiving situations, which is relevant to them as players? So rather than just having everything, you know, all the all the goals lined up and doing one v one with the defender in front or the defender behind, it's like well, actually, our centre forward probably needs to work a little bit more with the defender behind them one v one, and our wide players need to receive the ball on the angle so they can drive at a fullback. So even those smaller-sided games, how can we bring facets of the game model into them and the principles within that game into the sessions? And I I still count myself in amongst this. I look back and think I still waste quite a lot of time trying to put on a session sometimes. It's like, all right, we'll just... At the start, we'll do a rondo. It's like, well, how can I make that rondo really relevant to how we play? And you can make little tweaks, alterations, constraints on your practice, which completely change the outcomes you get within them and they can build in the idea of how you want to play. So for example, with a Ronda, we've ever seen a Ronda, let's say it's a 4v2 or a 6v3, by putting on the outside of them like little mini goals or gates. So when those players in the middle win the ball, rather than them just go, right, I've won it, I'm going to give it back to the other team or the new players go in the middle. Can they try and exit that box and put it in the mini goals or dribble through the gates? Which then allows the outside players who've been keeping possession, they have to then transition to defence and counter-press and win the ball and stop them getting out. So 
it's essentially the same practice, but a little tweak with some goals around the outside alters the outcomes of what you get and builds closer into your identity. And I think those transition moments are the most important part in training sometimes. And uh, there's nothing I, I dislike more than uh, watching a coach go, right, next one, when a repetition of whatever's happened and it's you've seen a turnover, like someone's won the ball in a 1v1. It's like, well, I've won the ball. I want you to counter-attack now. So it's just those little specific elements of training. And what happens when you have those that specificity is the process of planning your sessions takes forever because you're always asking questions. Oh, is that a bit, does that, does that go against what we're looking to create here? You know, and you're really looking at every minute detail and sometimes it goes wrong. Sometimes you've gone far too complex for your own good and, and it breaks down. It doesn't work. And you, you chuck that one, that session in the bin or you adapt it next time. So I think that that specific training is really key to me and less wasted time on the pitch. So every session, no matter what you're looking for, whether it is earlier on in the training week, when you're maybe looking at the well, high intensity stuff where you're really getting your, your conditioning in, can you still put the football ideas into it and I think that's something I'm still working on and I'd like to see next season I have two sessions a week so I really need to be clever with the time used to maximise that time on the pitch Let's talk about pre-season there's obviously an urban myth out there something that we saw a lot I think at Leeds with Marcelo Bielsa in, when we had a player that we brought in in a January who wasn't very good at pressing they'd say well you know just wait for a wait for a full pre-season with Bielsa and you'll you'll soon iron out those problems but how true are those urban myths about pre-season being the time when you instill tactical basics? I mean I think it's true right back in the day I guess pre-season was all about running balls don't come out you know hill runs laps this, that, and the other, and, and I mean, I guess it was Jose Mourinho introduced that different model of training, a tactical periodization where they brought the balls out on day one. And I mean, I'm certainly not his biggest fan anymore, but uh, that, that <laughs> sort of <laughs> changed the way a lot of people thought. It took a bit of time to change the way people thought about training. And yeah, I think now it's, it's, it is the best time because you don't have games or so you have pre-season games, but you're not judged on results in them. So you have almost an uninterrupted time of working in how you want to play. And obviously, yes, we're talking about the layering again during the season, you layer on, you layer on, you layer on, but I think it's really important to just lay down the basics. Uh, this is going to play in so like the last couple of pre-seasons. I've had one good pre-season and one less good pre-season, but the whole time was looking to be as for specific. This is our model and we're going to use those training sessions and yeah they are periodized so the different training session a week you will have different physical outcomes but still even with that you have every practice is in some way building towards what you're looking to do within the season and then i guess the other question is how long do you expect it to take for your team to sort of pick up the tactical identity i mean i think you'll say well you know you could do it for 10 seasons and it wouldn't ever necessarily arrive at a point where you're happy but how long before that becomes a functional acceptance of a tactical identity i think this is a bit of a how long's a piece of string question because you've seen some coaches go in and have instant impacts others shorter impacts and i guess sometimes that is because of the way you're going to coach someone like conte obviously at the moment gets very quick outcomes because he's very pattern based and he basically leads you to the goal himself but then someone like Arteta at Arsenal, who's maybe implementing more deeper understanding, like more principle-based football, is taking quite a long time. And that's also good time to the players, you know, getting rid of certain players, bringing in new players as well. So I don't think there's like a clock on these things. Obviously, in reality, I doubt that I'm going to be in a position next season where my job is going to be under threat if we lose games, because it's not quite at that level yet. But I guess... In the real cut and throw part of football, yeah, your job is under threat. So you have to get results pretty quickly in most circumstances. So, yeah, how long is it going to take to me? I said the team I've taken over are coming from a defend deep, counter-attack, into the space, use your pace. That is their style of play at the moment. So it could take me a bit longer. But it could be that they really enjoy it and they identify with it and right straight away, we love this and week two and you're, you're flying. I doubt it's going to be that simple, but I really don't think there's a clock on this. But I would like to see like real progress within half a season. And that's like a completely arbitrary 
finger in the air, pick a date out when I'm going to see it. But I'd, I'd like to think I've introduced some elements of what I want to see by that, that, I guess, Christmas in the first season. But it might take longer, it might be shorter. But I know that's not a great answer to the question. I can't say, oh yeah, it takes six weeks, because it, it really depends on so many variables of, of, of what you're working with. What about if it doesn't work? Like, How much flexibility are you going to have within the game model? If things aren't going as you anticipate and you think maybe this group aren't going to be able to work this way, is there going to be much flexibility for you to start tweaking the model? Well, I guess it is a concern because if it doesn't work, what do I do? Do I tweak it? Do I make it more functional? So let's say I'm working with these wide wingers and we're just wide open on the transition and we're not be able to contain. So do I bring them inside? Do I play a more of a, a conservative approach to my style? I don't think I could ever say, right, okay, six weeks, we've not won a game. We're getting absolutely battered every week. Right, back in, two backs of four, <laughs> you know, when we win the ball, channels and hope for the best. I, I don't think that, and that goes back to the aesthetics, but, you know, like not, I can't coach something I don't believe in, but there might be tweaks. There might be, as I said, like it might be more of a, a direct possession game where we have players closer together so we can counter press easier and when we lose the ball we're just in a better shape to contain transitions then maybe that little tweak like that will be made so there is flexibility within that for sure but I don't think I would you know, I, you know I'd rather walk away I guess than, than completely rip up everything and start again because once you get coaching a, a style of play that you don't like A you're not convincing and, and you don't enjoy it and and it just doesn't work for me. And I think we've seen quite a few examples of at the top level of coaches try and coach something they don't believe in, uh, whether they've been forced to by their board or, or whatever, or, or they just think, well, I have to coach a different way now because I'm with a better group of players. And, and often it falls down. So I, I, I really don't want to fall into that trap myself. We had a Patreon question from William Glavin who said, how much time is spent in post-match tactical analysis when trying to implement a new tactical approach? Is this delivered to players individually or in a group setting? That's a good question. So what's, what's your answer to that? Well, I'm a big fan of video analysis. It's a crucial aspect of the coaching process and it's never really been embedded in clubs I've worked at. But despite that, like self-led, I've videoed training, I've videoed matches to use for analysis purposes and it's it's a time saver you can get more information in you can review your own training sessions you see things in matches and training that you've not seen on the day and it creates a really good feedback loop in terms of how much time not as much as I would like to but I don't think players would probably say that it's going to be crucial to the work next season and yes it'll be delivered in collective unit and individual formats so that might be a, just a collective video put in the group chat. This is strengths, weaknesses, or areas of development based on the last game. And then after training, I think we get a video room at my next role, which is really exciting. A place for me to board the pants of players. <laughs> and yeah, we'll look at collective work. So what is the midfield doing? What is the defence doing? What's our forward line doing? And then individually, so individual aspects. And whilst you are also praising good play and and finding really like best practice examples. You're also looking for issues that have come up and speaking about how you can resolve them. And, and hopefully based on that video where they can see it rather than just explaining on the tactics board, you can, they can see it. And I think it helps them resolve those situations in matches much, much quicker. So really essential. And I'm looking forward to sort of ramping that up in the new role next season. In terms of the training side of things, you've mentioned that you have two training sessions a week. So what will the structure of those sessions look like? Well, it all depends on how much contact time you have with your players, your training week, and what you can get out of it. And it, and it never seems enough. I'm coming from a three-session-a-week training week where we had a mandatory periodization schedule. So we had like our global theme of where we're going to work, like what principles or sub-principles we might be working on during the week. So that might be in or out of possession or transitions or just an aspect of our game that we're focusing on. And then the first night was speed. It was strength. It's very dynamic, intense, short times. So it might be 90 seconds of work small numbers so you're sprinting you're changing directions you're building one energy system the next night would be endurance where you're working in larger areas longer times different energy system but still for me important that despite the physical outcomes you're getting I'm always looking to constrain my practices in order to get out 
what I want from a tactical and technical level, so your game model. I don't think we should separate the training process like that. And then we had had the Friday session, which was match preparation. So that's looking very specifically towards the match, how we're going to deal with the upcoming opposition, how we're going to break them down, how we're going to defend perceived threat, um, how we're going to organise ourselves for set pieces. And always the coach's favourite training session, probably not the players. So that's how we're going to do it. And then going forward, two nights a week, not ideal, have to condense that almost into you know, three sessions into two and it's going to be similar I'm very keen to work in, in the first night of the week which will be the like the strength night where it's again dynamic it's quick it's changes direction it's sprints it's small sided but I'll be looking at individual possession so I would define that as how players receive maintain and progress the ball as an individual so sometimes it won't be 1v1 it might be 1v2 it might be working in in a 3v3 area but we're working with an individual on on the aspects of that player it's position specific so that might be a number six receiving the ball in the center with pressure from multiple angles it might be a winger receiving the ball on the touchline where they could only play one way because they've got the touchline as a defender so it's specific and yeah that's that first night will individual possession lots of small-sided games to work that physical output and then the next session will be you know, the endurance session, but also match prep in that as well. So I have to be quite clever, no wasted time during the session. And I also set pieces as well, which is, is something it's, it's important. And I want to be prepared for that as well. So a, a challenge, particularly as I'm used to having more contact time with players. So it'll be a challenge, but every other team will be in, in a similar boat. So we'll see how it goes. Got a question here about working in the women's game, but you've obviously been working in the women's game for a while now. I'm just interested in how much of a difference there's been in your work processes moving from coaching the boys to coaching the women. Not really. People often ask that, what's the differences? And it's like, well, I'd rather focus on the similarities whereby there's one ball, 22 players and two goals. (laughs) And in truth, nothing has really changed. Yes, there might be minute differences, which I might have uh, sort of subconsciously adapted in how I deal with players, but I'm, I'm not aware of any, any massive change. But yeah, I, I like to look at the similarities. It's football and, you know, I'm there to, to improve them and develop players and develop uh, so that tactical identity of the players. So no, no real change in approach at all. And that's how I think it should be. Well... Chris, thank you so much for coming on today. Just a reminder to our listeners that the next episode will be with Alex Collings talking about Olympic Lyonnais, League One and tactics at a club known for its youth development. So keep an eye out for that. Chris, what's the best way for our listeners to catch what you're putting out? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Chris Somersell. That's where I tend to put my work when I, when I put it. I put it online, not as much as I used to. You follow me if you like to hear me moaning about Tottenham, I guess. Yeah, and you did mention before that you'd done a great piece recently looking at the impact of Liverpool's tweaks on blocking in defensive work as well. So very much recommend that people check that out, although I'm sure most people have read it because you made a bit of a splash for yourself on Twitter at least with, with that. So hopefully most people will have seen that. But thank you so much again for coming on today and good luck for the next season. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie. If you like our artwork, then do check out Frankie Mitchell's portfolio over on her Twitter account at MadeByFrankie. Her work is incredible and she's often available for commissions, so do check that out. And then this music, written and recorded by my good friend Joe Hill and his North Ark Septet. You can find out more about them and listen to the music at www.joehillmusic.bandcamp.com. See you next week.